So my name is Aaron Koonsman. I'm one of the pastoral elders here. Um, some of you may wonder why we use that name, pastoral elders. Um, and it's actually more of a reminder for us as a congregation, also us as elders, to remember what exactly an elder is, um, what exactly it is that we're supposed to be doing. If you were to look at First Peter in chapter 5, you'd actually see that um, Peter calls elders to be shepherds and overseers um, over the flock, over the congregation. And that word shepherd that is used there is actually the verb tense of the word pastor, the word that we use for pastor. So really, biblically, when you look at it, the responsibility and duty of an elder is very much the responsibility of a pastor. Um, So part of that is leading and aiding in the spiritual development of the congregation through biblical instruction. So this morning, as our head pastoral elder, Nathan Detweiler is taking a break um, because of his newborn child, um, and our senior pastor, the, the rest of us pastoral elders are going to be stepping up for the next several weeks to fill in, give him that break, um, and lead in delivering some of these messages as we have done in the past. Um, so this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Second John. This works, there we go. Uh, not John chapter 2, but Second John. Um, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and the elders or the uh, ushers will provide you with one. Uh, but before we get into that, please join me in prayer this morning. Dear God, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for this morning that we're able to gather here and to learn a little bit about you. Father, the message that I have prepared this morning is, is your message, Lord, and with that I submit it to you, Lord. I just pray that this message would ring true to all of us, and where it needs to change hearts and transform, Lord, your word would be at work. We humble our hearts before you this morning and are ready to hear. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be looking, like I said, at 2 John, and we're actually going to be going through the entire book today, which is not a very long book, so that is good. So uh, please follow along as I read, starting in verse 1, 2 John, verse 1. The elder, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands, as you have heard from the beginning. His command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. In each such person is a deceiver in the Antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching 
has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. So before we start to uh, break this down a little bit here, I want to start by reading a short story to you. Once upon a time, there was a man whose wife was a fish. But even though she was a fish, he thought she was a beautiful, kind-hearted, and intelligent woman. He would talk to his wife all day long. He would intently listen as she shared about her joys and her struggles, and that woman next door who kept parking on the grass. He loved his wife dearly, as he knew she loved him. In fact, he knew that the thing that she loved to do most was to be lightly fried with a little bit of butter in a pan. And they lived happily ever after. Now, obviously, this is a ridiculous story, all right? But, but there's two very important questions that I want to ask all of you about it. The first question is, did this man really know how to love his wife in light of the fact that he saw as loving her as frying her in a pan of butter? Yes, no, no. So good, no, okay, uh, obvious answer. Second question, did this man really have any concept of who his wife was considering he thought she was a woman, but she was a fish? Okay, no, all right, good. Answering the obvious questions, that's good. Well, as strange as it may sound, there's a lesson for us today in this story that God has for us through Second John. So Second John is one of several letters that were written in the latter part of John the Apostle's life. Now, John the Apostle was one of the 12 disciples. He was with Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, it's the same John who wrote the Gospel of John in the book of Revelation, and not to be confused with John the Baptist. And as we see in verse 1, John referred to himself as the elder, okay? And this letter, as you see in that that very first verse there, is written um, to the lady and her children, which is generally believed to be a veiled or a poetic way of referring to a church that existed in Western Asia Minor and its its congregants. And then John goes on in verse 1 to say, as we read, whom I love in the truth, And not I only, but also who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. So you probably know from your own experience reading scripture that John uses the word love a lot. It's a very common word. He also uses the word truth a lot. If you were to look in the Gospel of John by itself, which again is what he wrote, the word truth appears 25 times. Okay, That that same word is truth. And if you look at 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John combined, the word shows up 19 times. And if you were to compare this with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts all combined, so in contrast here, it's only used six times. So he uses this word a lot. And this word truth can also be translated, if you look into the meaning, as corresponding to reality. So when John is talking about truth, he's talking about what is the real deal. So when Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, 
Jesus is saying that he is the ultimate reality. He's the, he's the real deal, the truth. So I just want you to keep that understanding in mind as we're reading these next few verses here. So going on to verse 3, it says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, again, the ultimate reality in Christ, just as the Father commanded us. Verse 5, And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. So God, through John, is reminding the church of an old command, that they are to love one another. And in order to do that, they must follow God's commands. And his command is that they walk in love. Now, this might sound a little bit odd at first, because we understand the idea of loving one another, and that we're commanded to do so, but perhaps the idea of following God's commands as being a way of loving one another may sound a little bit odd. May even sound a little bit out of place. Because how do we love one another following, by following God's commands? Is that what he's saying? Or is he just saying the command itself is that we are to love one another? And really the answer is both. It's really involved in both things. If you were to read in Mark 12, 29 through 31, that's where Jesus talks about the greatest command and the second greatest command. Greatest command being to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus is actually quoting from Leviticus in Leviticus 19.18, when he says that part about loving your neighbor. And if you were to go a little bit back, and we're not going to get into all the details of it, but if you were to go a little bit back in Leviticus 19, you would see that there's a bunch of commands written in that section. Okay, There's things such as don't steal, don't lie, don't pervert justice, don't slander, um, don't hate or seek revenge. And then it kind of sums it all up, finally getting to this verse saying, and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's basically summing up this entire concept. And so quite literally, if you follow God's commands, his commands are demonstrating how we love one another. And this is equivalent really to, if you were to read the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of the stuff that Jesus is saying in there are very much instructions, God's commands on how we are to love our neighbor. So this is why walking in obedience to God's commands, as it talks about in 2 John verse six, is actually an act of loving our neighbor. Now, you're probably wondering how this relates back to our story of the man and his fish wife that we talked about earlier. Well, I asked you before, did this man really know how to love his wife? And you rightly said no, because no fish or woman would want to be fried in a pan, obviously. Um, So clearly the man was not listening to his fish or even pretending to listen to his wife or whatever, So he didn't really even have any concept of what love actually looked like. Often when we think about love, such as loving our neighbor, we focus on the feelings of love. But I'm sure you've all heard it said, love's not just something you feel, it's also something that you do. And the Greek word used for love in verse 6 does very much have that context of action associated with it. It is very much something that we are to do. But to actually be loving, okay, it has to be something that is going to be received as love by our neighbor, and more importantly, something that God is saying is love. 
And that comes right back again to following God's commands about what love is. Again, in John, in 2 John, I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. So this is actually very practical for us. It's some easy application. But first, we need to learn what are God's commands. And this means, of course, familiarizing ourselves with Scripture. And a fantastic place, like I already mentioned, to look for that stuff is the Sermon on the Mount. That's a good starting spot. And actually, just between Matthew seven and Matthew or Matthew five and Matthew seven, in three chapters, there's a tremendous amount of material in there, and we could spend months in sermons just talking about that stuff. So, you know, if you've not looked at that in a while or you've never looked at that, I would encourage you to dig in and learn a little bit about what it looks like to love our neighbor in accordance with God's commands. But the hard part, of course, is applying that information. Because the Sermon on the Mount talks about being salt and light to the world. It talks about through prayer removing our hatred and lusts towards our neighbors that dwells in our hearts. It talks about truly loving our enemies, giving to the needy, not judging with hypocrisy. And, of course, there's a lot more. But we need to read, we need to pray, and apply. So moving on to verse 7. In 2 John, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. So John is switching gears now in this letter, and he's really moving on to what is the heart of, of his letter. And it's, it's a very serious warning. There are many deceivers who deny Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh, and this is contrary to what we read in other parts of Scripture. You, you read, for example, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that the Word was Jesus. If you look in verse 14, it talks about Jesus became flesh, the Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. And it goes on to kind of highlight more of that point. That Jesus, God, came in the flesh, is presently in the flesh with the Father, and will return in the flesh fully man and fully God. John is really addressing a heresy that had sprung up during that time uh, that denied that Jesus had come in the flesh at all, or at least remained in the flesh for very long. It was almost this idea like Jesus' fleshly parts were, were more like clothing in a way that he just put on temporarily and then shed after he, after he died. Uh, to them, this concept of the flesh was impure, and it was sinful automatically. And therefore, there's no way that God could be both spirit and flesh, because the flesh part was bad. And John specifically calls those individuals who believe or teach those things as being deceivers and antichrists. And of course, there's a reason for that. All right? we, we know that Jesus was God incarnate. All right? We have this prophecy prophecy from Isaiah, um, and this is talking about a child being born. It says, Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this is talking about Jesus. We know this to be prophecy talking about Jesus, who was a child born, yet was also called Everlasting God, or Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Um, really, he embodied those characteristics. And after his death and resurrection, he appeared to the disciples. He let them touch him. He ate with them, showing that he had returned in the flesh. He just wasn't a spirit being at that point. He was in the flesh. 
Then in Acts 1, uh, we read about Jesus um, in his physical body uh, ascending into heaven, and it talks about that Jesus will return in that same fashion at some point in the future. So John is saying that to deny Jesus' coming in the flesh is to deny who Jesus really is. And the people who teach these things, again, are deceivers and antichrists. Now, you may be surprised to know that the word antichrist really is only ever used in the books of 2 John and 1 John. And it's really only a five, five total times in the entire Bible. And I just wanted to clarify what the word is talking about here. This is from 1 John 2.22. It says, Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. So 1 John tells us that the Antichrist are those that deny that Jesus is the Christ, which Christ is the Greek word. You're probably familiar with the Greek word for Messiah. While 2 John teaches that Antichrists deny that Jesus came in the flesh. Now, you've probably heard mention of the Antichrist, okay? We talk about the Antichrist at the end of the age, and that is a true individual, all right? But the other parts of the Bible will give him different titles, titles such as man of lawlessness, uh, sometimes referred to as the horn or the beast. Um, but prior to that time at the end of the age, there are many Antichrists who come in the spirit of the Antichrist, and that's what John is really talking about here in First and Second John. So continue on to verse 8 in Second John. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be fully rewarded. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now this is talking about some pretty serious consequences here uh, for those who do not continue in the teaching of Jesus. In no unclear terms, John really is saying here that, that these people are not Christian. Um, and actually brings us back again to that story that we were talking about at the beginning, the man and his, his fish wife. And the second question I asked was, if the man really even had any concept of who his wife was, considering, of course, that she was a fish, and he thought that she was a, a woman. And you all said no, because again, that you know, it just was, was the denial of reality here. And so the man was in denial about fundamental aspects of who his wife really was, to the point that he didn't even recognize that she was a fish. And it was quite clear from that that he really wasn't in any sort of relationship with his wife at all. It was just this made-up construct in his own mind. The parallel here is that if we're in denial about fundamental aspects of who Jesus is and what he clearly taught, then it becomes questionable if we are really in a relationship with him at all. Deny that Jesus came, was incarnated in the flesh, is to deny his ability to atone for sins through his shed blood, and to deny the physical resurrection of Jesus is to deny the accounts detailed in Scripture that Jesus was both God and man, spirit and flesh together, which allows him to be our sacrifice as well as our high priest. Now, there's a lot of people out there who will say that, that they are Christian, yet they will say also at the same time that God the Father and Jesus are two separate gods. Okay, They'll, they'll have this, this mindset and this belief. And this is a fundamental denial of who Jesus is. It dramatically changes our perception of the nature of God. Rather than God, the God, 
dying on our behalf as Jesus, this is God sending somebody else to die for us. This is no longer a God of self-sacrificial love. Jesus said these words in John 15, 13. He said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And, And that's great. That's beautiful. All right. But if Jesus is not the God, well, his words may be saying, hey, I have a lot of love for you. I've got this fantastic love for you. But what does that say about God the Father's love if Jesus is not the God? Again, this fundamentally changes our idea and understanding of who God is if we have this concept of Jesus and God the Father as being different gods. This is a fundamental denial of who Jesus is, and it totally contradicts thousands and thousands of years of exclusively monotheistic worship that Christians and Jews before them practiced. And John would likely call individuals who teach these things deceivers and antichrists. Such an individual does not seem to really be in a relationship with Jesus at all. Rather, it is a construct in their own minds. Maybe it's something that they came up with. Maybe it's something that they've been taught, but it's a construct in their own minds rather than who Jesus truly is, just like the man and his fishwife. So verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Now, my wife and I will periodically invite individuals into our home who clearly intend to teach or do teach things contrary to what scripture says. Um, They are in, in some way in denial about who Jesus is. They would call themselves Christian, yet they don't hold to biblical teaching. So the question becomes, are we violating what scripture is saying when we do that? Because there are some Christians who would point to this passage and say, hey, those individuals shouldn't be coming into your house because they're teaching something that is contrary to the gospel truth. Why are you inviting them into your home? And and to answer that question, I want to jump back a little bit to passage in Matthew. Okay, this is Matthew 10, 9 through 11. This gives us a little bit of context to, to answer this question. And this is the, the passage where Jesus was sending out the disciples uh, to teach, the 12 specifically, to go and teach um, in, the, in the local region. And it says, Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for your journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. So Jesus was telling his disciples, first off, don't rely on yourselves, don't take all this stuff along with you, but to instead rely on God's provision and the provision of those that you are going to to teach, that you're going to share the good news with. So as a result, the disciples were in very real need of food, shelter, and perhaps even clothing from the individuals that they were going to be visiting. And that was necessary for them to continue in their work of spreading the gospel. So in a very real way, when those resources were provided to the disciples, those individuals providing the resources, providing the housing, the clothing, whatever it was, were participating in the work that the disciples were doing. And this is very similar if you think about, you know, we have missionaries all across the world, and we usually provide them with money, but sometimes with other resources. 
in that work, we're helping them continue their work. So even though we may not be there on the front line sharing what they're sharing, we are still participating in their ministry. So this is exactly what what the disciples were doing in this situation. That's the kind of um, circumstance that was going on in the first century. And this is the type of situation that John is talking about in our passage in 2 John. Because in John's day, if somebody who taught something contrary to the gospel, was a false teacher, was going around, still needed a lot of these same things, needed resources, needed provision, needed housing, and they were going around and they were looking for those resources, an individual who brought them into their house and provided for them in this way would indeed be assisting and participating in their wicked work, just like it talks about in our passage. But this idea, even though this made sense in the first century, okay, and this is kind of how society was, it really is not a a direct parallel or a perfect representation of how things go on in our society. In our society, if a false teacher was going around and didn't get a meal from us or didn't live with us for a period of time, that is very unlikely to disrupt any of their teaching. In fact, they're probably going to have their own provision in some manner, And in our society in general, we have all sorts of resources available to people who are in need in some fashion. And on the flip side, us not giving them the meal, they probably, whether or not they got it or did not, would not see that as directly us supporting them in their ministry. It's just something that they're they're doing. Just because in our society, we have cars and all this mass transit, (laughs) food banks, restaurant, it really is just not the same type of impact Um, that those resources would provide for us in in our society today as it would have back then. In fact, you could actually argue that the opposite may be true, that by inviting somebody into your home who who is a false teacher, you may actually be wasting their time because they're not out somewhere else spreading their false gospel. And, perhaps more importantly, it's an opportunity for you to love them and to share the true gospel with them. So it is a very different type of situation. So the real concern of our passage is about aiding false teachers in their ministry. And if you inviting false teachers into your home is not doing that, if you're not aiding them in the ministry by giving them a meal and, or, or having them in your home, then you're not in violation with what Scripture is saying here. But I do want to give a little bit of a word of warning, because if either you or individuals in your household... Um, are in some way not firmly rooted in scripture to the point that you are at risk of being swayed by a false gospel message, then you do need to be careful, okay? So, so there is something to be cautious about in this. And it may be the type of thing where that's only appropriate if you have somebody else, another brother or sister in Christ, who is, who's, is more firmly rooted in scripture, who can join you in those conversations. But, but they are worth having. And really there's a lot of growth that can happen through those types of challenging conversations. So I, I would encourage um, us to have those conversations if we are able to. So when somebody shows up at your, at your door, rather than just slamming the door in their face, you know, have those conversations. It's good. It can be very fruitful. And, you know, it, it might bring them to salvation. So I, I mentioned a few weeks ago that um, I've been in some conversations and some emails back and forth with uh, a Jehovah's Witness. And um, in one of our exchanges, I had had some questions, and he had provided me with an article back in response. And, and I'll admit, when I was reading the article, I was like, wow, this, this article is pretty well written. And it made me wonder, 
if some of my, my ideas that I had about how I was interpreting some passages of Scripture were correct. Um, I was wondering if I had the, had the right perspective on things. And without any other resources at my disposal, that might have been a lingering question in my mind. Because none of us know the answers to everything. None of us know everything off the top of our head. I definitely don't. So what I ended up doing is going back and uh, using a concordance and consulting some of the original language. And what I found, with a little bit of digging, was even though their argument was very persuasive on the surface, once I dug a little bit deeper, it pretty much completely fell apart. You know, there really was no depth to the things that they were suggesting. It was really a lot more conjecture than anything else. My point here is that John calls these types of individuals deceivers for a reason. And we're all capable of being deceived. We need to be in cautious and in prayer and must weigh what we're being told against what Scripture says. And for all of us, you know, myself included, all the elders included, we're going to need help at times. And, and maybe that's help in person. Maybe that's help from reading some really good books and resources. But we're going to need to look beyond ourselves and sometimes just help interpreting and understanding Scripture from other believers in Christ. And that's, that's part of what being a part of a body is for. So the um, big takeaways from today. First, is that unlike the man from our original story, who did not know how to properly love his fish wife, we are called to love our neighbors. And we do that by following God's commands, which give us a clear framework of what godly love looks like. It's not about how we feel or how we, we want to do love. It's what God says is love. And secondly, again, unlike the man who thought his fish was actually a woman, this wife of his with all these attributes and characteristics, which were really just a figment of his own imagination, we must seek to know God for who he really is and what he really taught, not what we want him to be and not what we wished he had said, but who he actually is. Because if we miss the fundamental identity of who Jesus is and what he taught, then it is questionable if we really have a relationship with him at all. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I didn't say this. This is Jesus' words. There's no other provision in the Bible. Jesus is the ultimate reality. And we must walk with him and know him for who he truly is. As John, and this is as John explained, he is the one and only God in the flesh. And if we deny this, we're denying him, and we can count ourselves among the deceivers and the Antichrists. Now, this is a pretty strong message, and it's not my intent today, even though it is difficult, it's not my intent to cause fellow, fellow followers of Christ to, to doubt if we have a relationship with Christ, okay? Um, and thus doubt, you know, yours or my salvation. So I'm putting up on the screen here, this is the Christian Missionary Alliance statement of faith, at least in part. I only just cut two sections out here. And this is what the Christian Missionary Alliance believes. This is also what we believe to be true here at this church. And even though this is not scripture, it is, it is a good way of summarizing what scripture says. And you can, there's a bunch of references on the bottom. There's a whole bunch more than that. But I just kind of want to read through this really quick here. So our statement of faith here is there is one God who is infinitely perfect existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the true God and the true man. 
He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He died upon the cross, the just for the unjust, as a substitutionary sacrifice, and all who believe in him are justified on the grounds of his shed blood. He arose from the dead according to the scriptures. He is now at the right hand of the majesty on high as our great high priest. He will come again to establish his kingdom, righteousness, and peace. And then I cut out a section in there. This is jumping down a little bit in the statement of faith. It says, salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ for all men, and those who repent and believe in him are born again of the Holy Spirit, receive the gift of eternal life, and become children of God. And if you believe all of this intellectually, and you've repented of your sins, and you've, you've submitted yourself to Christ, then you are a child of God. You are a follower of Christ, and you do not need to be in doubt about your salvation, because that's what's required of us, that, that we understand these things about God, we repent of our sins, and, that we, and we follow him. Um, but it, it's worthy of asking that question of yourself, you know, do I believe these things? Have I repented of my sins? You know, these are important questions to ask. But if you do not believe these things about God, or if you've not repented and placed your trust in him, then I do want to invite you to do that today, because this is an important, the important step of our lives. Um, and it's not, it's not something that you will regret doing. So please, um, I, I do want to ask that you, you take advantage of that opportunity today, and after we close, you can definitely come talk to me or, or any of the elders. Um, so I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your truth and your word. Lord, we seek to know you for who you truly are. And we know that, that at times, Lord, we are deceived, whether it's we're self-deceived or whether we're deceived by things that we, we hear and see in our society. Lord, but we want to know the truth. And we know that if we ask for wisdom, you have said that you will give it to us generously, Lord, and we ask. Lord, I just pray that you would transform our hearts. Help us to come to know you better. Help us to truly love others as you have called us to love them, Lord. Not as we selfishly would like to love others, or not as our society says that we should love others, Lord. But as you as the creator of the universe, the creator of the society, the ruler of the universe, Lord, has directed us to love others. For you are love, Lord. We thank you, Lord, and just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're ending service a little bit early this morning. Um, I would encourage you to use this opportunity to seek prayer. Um, there's going to be individuals around. Come find me or one of the other elders or just somebody else in the congregation. But other than that, you are dismissed. Go and be the church.